Torah Resource presents the Rob and Caleb Show. All aboard! And now, from two sides of the same state, here they are, Rob and Caleb. What up and shalom. Welcome to the Rob and Caleb Show. My name is Caleb Hegg. With me, as always, a Rob Van Hoff. What up and shalom, Rob? A.K.A. Hoff. That's Hoff. <laughs> That's yes. Hebrew for Hoff. Hebrew for the Hoff. Uh, <laughs> yes. And uh, we also have another, uh, we have a very special guest with us today. Uh, just like last year, last year at this same time of year, we brought a, the same special guest on. And that special guest is my father. What up and shalom, Dad? How's it going? Hey, doing well. Thank you. Uh, privileged to be on your show. Oh, well, I, I think it's just as much your show as it is ours, seeing as though the radio station pretty much belongs to you. But yeah, thanks for coming on. We appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, no problem. And so uh, I was looking, if you're just joining us for the very first time, uh, this show is broadcast live now, which we're very excited about. And uh, because of that, we have a live chat room. So you can go to trradio.com backslash Rob slash and slash Caleb slash show. <laughs> There's a lot of slashes. A lot, yeah. I was a lot of dashes. A lot of slashes. Right uh, or you can just go to trradio.com, then go to broadcasting, go to the Rob and Caleb Show page, and uh, live chat with us there. And so, Rob, I noticed that you were kind of showing off with your Hebrew in the chat room before we got started. We start the chat room about an hour before the show starts. What were you... And uh, Rob was... Rob was uh, <laughs> putting in a lot of Hebrew. Explain what you're doing here, Rob. People thought you were joking. So, so. Uh, well, I, <laughs> I was, I was thinking about what up. <laughs> yes, when the tag. One of our. T- I like. I like saying what up. One of our uh, taglines is what up in Shalom. Like, how yeah? do you, I actually tried to tag echomrim what up beivrit right. How how do you say what up in Hebrew? And I started thinking, and I I remembered a Mishnah, Kagiga two one, and so I looked it up. It says uh, whoever whoever asks or speculates about four things, it is better that they had not come into the world. And the first one is malamalan, what is up? <laughs> <laughs> now the four things are malamalan, what is up, malamata, what is down, ma bifanim, and ma lachor, what is before and what is after. And it had to do with they were trying to teach uh, rabbinic disciples not to read too much. Uh, not to speculate about Genesis uh, and the creation. You might start talking with people who know the Gospels or something. I don't know. But so, in any case, the first one is what is above. So in other words, up. so in other words, so, it's better that I not be born because I according, I... according to this <laughs> stream of tradition, it's just a joke. Yeah. But anyway, Mala Milan, you could say what up. Okay, so before we get into the the weightier matters of the show... Uh, there's several things. First of all, the show notes that were sent out today, you can sign up for those on the same page. Go to TR Radio broad, and then the broadcast tab and then Robin Caleb show and you will be able to see um, our show notes. And the other thing, actually I'm glad I just said that because uh, I had forgotten to press record on our video. I 
we videotape this uh, show every single week, and somebody asked last week if we could live stream it. I looked into it. We could live stream this over, uh, it's like a Google chat room, but the problem is there are some bugs in it, and I don't like it. It uh, Every time someone starts talking, it actually switches cameras, and it's so distracting that I don't, yeah. Anyway, um, also, for those of you who said that you wanted stickers, I have not forgotten. It's not that uh, I, I know you're looking for them in the mail. I actually haven't sent them out yet, so I'll try to do that today or tomorrow. And uh, last but not least, before we start getting into some weightier things, uh, I was sent this this morning by, should I, should I play my new jingle? I got a new jingle, everyone. I made a new jingle this last week for if we ever want to look something up on Google, uh, you got to Google it. Yeah. Um, so this one was uh, John Hagee's ministry response to Four Blood Moon's allegation. So Mark Biltz is not very happy that uh, John Hagee has now written this book on the Four Blood Moons and now is making a video on it. And the video is called Four Blood Moons. And so Haggy's cashing in on the Four Blood Moon thing and, and uh, Biltz isn't happy because he came up with the whole idea that they're, you know, he wants the publishing rights, apparently. And uh, so I guess the one question I have is uh, when nothing happens on these so-called blood moons, which we don't believe they are, but if uh, if something doesn't happen on these blood moons, then <laughs> no, it was his idea. No, it wasn't. It was his idea first. I mean, are they going to try to push it back onto each other? I don't know. This whole thing's getting a little ridiculous. Okay, let's get into weightier matters, and we'll bring my father in on this conversation. So the last week we talked about blood moons, and uh, if you get the mail out, I apologize for this week's show notes. It says blood moons. That's wrong. It should say uh, chronology of the passion. But uh, last week we talked about blood moons, and um, we also talked about, uh, what else did we talk about? We talked about the book of Hebrews, and lo and behold, Monty Judah's name was brought up, and there was only one person. Uh, one person that objected to us bringing uh, Monty Judah's name up, we said that since Monty Judah is uh, false, falsely prophesied back in 97, that he should not be listened to. This person said we uh, were just picking on Monty Judah, and uh, it's only because he's rejected the book of Hebrews and says that it shouldn't be in the canon. Uh, he hasn't pulled it out of his Bible. He just, you know, he, this person said that it was the same as Martin Luther saying that James shouldn't be in the canon. And so this person said, well, how long are you going to, you know, are you going to retry, you know, uh, Monty Judah? How long does he have to be condemned kind of a thing? Uh, you know, he already said he was sorry. Well, first of all, there's a couple of issues here. Number one, I don't think Monty Judah has ever repented. And the reason why is because if he repented, he wouldn't be teaching. That's number one. Repentance means that you change the, the, the course of action. And the course of action uh, would be that he not teach anymore. He didn't do that. He continued teaching. That's not repentance. So he ha in my book, he has not repented of falsely prophesying. Uh, the second issue is that, uh, and I'll pass this one over to my dad because I, I think we agree completely on this. Uh, I think that if a person is has said that they are a believer and is put into any kind of a leadership role, whether that's being a pastor 
whether it's uh, being a uh, you know a leader of a ministry, whatever. If they do something that requires the death penalty in Torah, whether it's uh, adultery, uh, whether it's I mean I you know murder, uh, whether it's uh, falsely prophesying. I don't think that they should be allowed to teach anymore. Dad, you want to take it from here? What What are your thoughts on this? Well, yeah, I agree with that. And, uh, you know, obviously uh, the question is whether or not, uh, why was there a death penalty? We read it in Deuteronomy 13. It says, but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. That is, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder uh, comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dream, dreamer of dreams. And in, in the other text that's, uh, in a, uh, in, uh, that speaks of the false prophets, it, it, it reiterates the fact that if someone tells you something's going to happen and it doesn't happen, he's considered to be a false prophet. But it goes on to say, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreamers. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Obviously, we're not saying that there is an unforgivable sin in in false pro, uh, being a false prophet. On the other hand, what it means is is that uh, from that point on, that person is not, is not again to have any authoritative office of teaching. Now, uh, some might say, "Well, I'm not authoritative. I'm just I just have a website and I'm just teaching," but you know, people like Monty Judah are going around and people are um, inviting them to be keynote speakers and so forth and so on at, uh, at conferences, and they are listening to his words, and they are and respecting, and that's more or less what the word here, fear, means, you know, taking the words uh, to be uh, something that God wants you to do, okay? So I think Monty Judah should step down and you know, find a trade or something and work with his hands and, uh, and be quiet. That's, and I, and I think it's, it's atrocious that, uh, after he even said, if I, if I, if this doesn't come true, then don't listen to anything I, I'm saying. Yeah. Sure. We can forgive him. Remember, forgiving doesn't mean that the person that's forgiven is necessarily changed. He, we can forgive him when we do. We're not holding grudges or bitterness against him. We're simply saying that according to scripture, he ought to not, he ought to step down from a teaching role. And apparently, according to his, his own words, right? I mean, he said. Uh, no. Now I don't have the quote in front of me, but it was something like, "You can throw me on the the trash, label me a false prophet, and throw me on the trash heap." Is what he. Uh, that's yeah, a quote. I mean, that's his own his own statement. Um, but I think one of the uh, the complaints that I saw on the internet in this discussion was, "Why are we singling him out?" In other words, that this person hinted that oh, there's all sorts of people who done this and you're just picking on this guy why don't you leave him alone you know well we, we're not just picking on him though we've talked about how uh how michael rude should not be teaching either he falsely prophesied back in 1999 uh 98 99 and uh, there's other ones as, as well uh you know there are other messianic leaders if a person falsely prophesies uh they shouldn't be in a teaching role i don't think it's just that though i mean correct me if i'm wrong guys but if a if a man is in a leadership position has uh publicly proclaim that he is a believer and uh, takes some kind of a leadership role and then ends up, uh, you know, uh, cheating on his wife, I think that that disqualifies a person as a, as a teacher as well. And I think it disqualifies them for life. They can't be put back into a teaching role. Am I wrong on that? What do you think? Oh, I would agree. 
uh, it doesn't mean that they are no longer useful for the kingdom of God. If they come to true repentance, they very well may be very useful for the kingdom of God. But there's a difference between being, you know, when, when for instance, in Acts 14, Paul's, uh, it, it, uh, Luke tells us that Paul, uh, uh, that they ordained or they put laid hands upon, they appointed, literally, they appointed elders in each ecclesia. Well, why did they appoint elders? Some people don't think you need any appointed leaders, but the scriptures make it clear that there are appointed leaders, and what are those appointed leaders supposed to do? They're supposed to handle the Word of God accurately and carefully, with humility, but they also are to be listened to and, and to be respected. And when they teach something that is clearly based upon the Word of God, and the, the people are to follow it. And so uh, uh, there's a sense in which that office requires a certain character quality that if those character qualities are lacking or uh, brushed aside, then they lose the ability to hold that office. And a man who has uh, been unfaithful in his marriage and has held an office, uh, and then he continues to hold that office afterwards, I just think he loses credibility, and I think uh, the people that follow him are doing so blindly. Do you think that uh, I, uh, in the discussion online about Monty Judah, a lot of people have said, uh, oh, well, uh, and I shouldn't say a lot of people. I think one or two people said, uh, well, you know, he's asked repentance, so we should allow him back into the community and, and whatnot. Okay, even if you're not talking about a leadership role, uh, a good question that I would have is, well, maybe it's not a good question. Maybe it's a bad question. A question that I would have, rather, is uh, if someone does something that warrants a death penalty, should they be let back into that specific community? If we were living in, in the time of the Torah, I, I, I mean, we're living in the time of the Torah, but if, we're, if we were living in Jerusalem in the time that the temple was there and whatnot, and the, te the temple was standing and the priesthood was there, if somebody did something like cheating on their wife or falsely prophesying, they would be stoned. Right. So the community would no longer see them. They would, I mean, they, that person would be rooted out. Even if the person said, I'm sorry, you know, I repent before they were stoned, you might be able to say, yeah, we forgive you, but you still have to throw the stones. You don't, you don't uh, stay the, the death penalty just because they say, I'm sorry. Right. So, so the question I would have is, should we replicate some of that in terms of if a person does something that would warrant the death penalty within the, within, uh, the Torah, from our community's standpoint, should we say, look, we forgive you, but you need to go find a different community? Well, I can, I can speak out of about 26 or 27 years of experience in our own community, okay? And uh, some, some 10 or 15 years of experience before that uh, on staff at a, at a local Christian church. I, I think that it, first of all, I would say each situation has to be uh, handled according to the context and the, the community and the people. You can't make an overriding law on this one because... The scriptures aren't uh, are explicit on it. So obviously, what you're saying is true. In the in the ancient times, when there was a Sanhedrin, when there were judges in the gates, when the temple was standing uh, and or tabernacles, and uh, and there were judges that made these decisions, uh, if if someone was caught in one of these kinds of sins, which required capital punishment, then they would be put to death, and they would no longer they would grieve. Uh, obviously, there would be a grieving period, but they would no longer have to answer this question. That's not the case now. So I think we have to say true repentance uh, is a sign that the person should be received. We have the example of Paul, uh, where there was uh, a man who was caught in uh, incest, actually, uh, and 
but he repented of it, and then in the second epistle of Corinthians, Paul says, receive him back. Well, okay, so there is, the, there is a precedent for that. On the other hand, I think discerning when there is true repentance and when it's false repentance is very, very difficult. And I can say quickly, just by saying this, there have been numbers of issues in our own community where people sinned in a way that, that was infidelity in marriage or something like that. Uh, we dismissed them from the community. They, over a period of months, asked to come back and to establish their repentance. Uh, we felt that that was appropriate. They did come back. They, we thought they established their uh, true repentance, but uh, over time it was proof that they hadn't. And similar things happened again, and it was a huge, huge uh, burden upon our community. So I would say, you know, leaders have to be very discerning, and and uh, we we need to seek to find true marks of repentance before we allow these kinds of people back into our communities, or even before we uh, would would begin to listen to them again. But in terms of an authoritative teacher, I would say there's there's no way back. Okay. Um, well, I think that we, uh, this is not actually the main topic of the, of the show, but uh, I think this is good. And uh, I do need to say that someone in the chat room has given Rob the drosh of the day for finding the uh, drosh what up. Um, I think that we should make a uh, drosh of the day jingle so uh, we can give out drosh of the day. Anyway, okay. Uh, let's move on to what's really important today. We are going to be talking about the passion chronology and this is a really hot topic especially around the time i mean it always comes up at the time of passover and this is the reason we brought my father on my father's written a paper on this very topic you can find it in the show notes it's tim hagg's article on the chronology of the passion you can also find the article on torahresource.com and then if you go to the articles tab and go to english articles you can find his chronology of the passion week article there. It is quite lengthy. It's about 32 pages long. And for good reason. It seems like everyone has a different opinion on this. And not only that, but it seems like people are super passionate about this this very issue. Rob, you look like you're about to go get something uh, off your bookshelf. No, my son just asked if he could reset the router. <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, I'm live right now. <laughs> um, hey, Caleb, while we have an interruption here, I just I feel prompted to say one thing here. Mm-hmm. I don't want anyone listening to the program to think that that uh, if someone has failed in uh, in in, uh, in their marriage, and uh, as a result there was a divorce, whatever, that they have committed an unforgivable sin. We're not talking about that. I know that there are people who, before they were believers, uh, lived immorally and lost their marriage as a result of it. And then afterwards, they're wondering if there's any way back. And I just want to make it very clear that God forgives sin and that he allows a clean slate for people who come to faith and seek forgiveness. And even those who may sin, uh, even though they are believers, God does forgive sin and there is restoration. Mm -hmm. So what we're talking about is an official uh, stamp of teaching approval upon somebody. Uh, That's what we were talking about. I don't want anyone to... to think, oh no, you know, here I am again. I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm unsavable uh, because of the sin of my life. No, the blood of Yeshua, the Lamb slain before the foundations of the world, uh, clears all kinds of sins, and and we're grateful for that. So I just wanted to make that clear. Yeah, Andre Felipe says, yeah, just look at uh, King David and Bathsheba. Yeah, no doubt. Okay, so 
one of the uh, we're going to talk about the chronology of the Passion Week. This is quite a uh, quite a I don't know heated debate. Here's the thing: is that we got we got really good. I have really good friends who disagree with me on this, uh, and and disagree with us on this. There are people in our community that have been in our community for a very long time who disagree with my father on this. Uh, there are people I'm sure in the chat room who disagree with us on this, and uh, so I don't think we can be super dogmatic one way or the other in terms in terms of we can't say well we're right and you're you're wrong, so you know we're not going to hang out with you or whatever. Uh, this is not one of the uh, let's let's stop breaking bread together debates. However, it is kind of a fun debate because the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, seem, and I, I put seem in there, they seem to contradict the Gospel of John. Now, of course, we, all three of us, uh, my father, Rob, and I, all agree that uh, no, there is uh, there's no contradiction within the Gospels. So I want to start, here's what we'll do. I'm going to start by reading a couple of uh, passages. I got a lot of them here, uh, but I'll just read a couple and uh, then we'll, and these are out of the Synoptic Gospels, okay? So I'll read a couple out of the Synoptic Gospels and uh, we'll, talk, then we'll talk a little bit about how uh, the sound and, and what this is setting up. Then I have a couple of clips I want to play and then we'll really get into the meat of it when we start bringing up some passages from the Gospel of John. So Matthew 26, 17, 21. You can find these if you're listening uh, live. You can find these in the show notes uh, and follow along with us. This is Matthew 26, 17 through 21. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare you for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city uh, to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. They were eating. He said, truly I say to you uh, that one of you will betray me. So in this passage, I mean, what what do we, I think this is pretty clear. Um, thoughts on this specific passage. What do you think this this tells us? Anyone? Well, I would just simply say that generally speaking, at least, although uh, we can't give definitive uh, uh, sources to prove this uh, unequivocally, to eat the Passover, as we have in, in Matthew twenty six seventeen, means to eat the meat of the lamb. The 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 Pascha, as we have it in the in the Greek, Pesach in the Hebrew, to eat the Pesach means to eat. Not doesn't mean simply to eat the the bitter herbs and and the matzah and so forth. It means to eat the meat of the of the of the lamb. So, to to say when they say where do you want us where do you you want us to prepare or where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover, they're they're clearly talking about having the meat of the Passover lamb being part of the meal. Well, and so right there, that's I mean to me this just seems like it lays it out completely. And I know people disagree with this. It says on the first day of unleavened bread. Now, a lot of people might say that that's the fifteenth of Nisan. So, the uh, the Passover was supposed to be you slaughter the pa- let's let's get the chronology from the Torah here. You're supposed to slaughter the Passover on the in between the evenings from the fourteenth from the from uh, the beginning to the end of the fourteenth. So, in between the evenings, the rabbis said that that started at three o'clock and went until sundown. 
Um, at least they did in the Mishnah, right? Or did Josephus, does Josephus shed light on that as well? Yes, both do. Okay, so the Mishnah and Josephus shed light on that. So uh, it seems like we have uh, the slaying of the lamb from uh, maybe 3 o'clock. Well, actually, uh, the Mishnah indicates that uh, they started earlier because normally they would they would they wouldn't think of the evening beginning until the sun had begun its decline sufficiently to be observed, which usually is somewhere between one thirty and three o'clock. Okay, so uh, the the uh, but however they made an exception on the fourteenth of Nisan, that is the the day uh, that would the day of in which the evening coming would be when the Passover Seder would be uh, held. They, they had so many uh, sacrifices to attend to that they extended, they went from 12 un, un, until 6 or whatever, or maybe slightly before 6. Okay, so this was on the 14th of Nisan, which uh, this is on your Hebrew calendar. The 15th of Nisan is the festival Sabbath, right? Right. So you have the festival Sabbath... The other issue that we should bring up is that not only do you have a festival Sabbath, no matter where it lands in the week, okay? So, for instance, this week, the 14th of Nisan is on a Friday, and then the 15th is on a Saturday, which is a weekly Sabbath anyway. Mm-hmm. But um, for those who might not know, you have your uh, you have your festival Sabbath. It could be on a Monday. It could be on a Tuesday. It could be on a Wednesday, whatever. And then you also have a weekly Sabbath, right? Right. So the 14th of Nisan... It seems like in this Matthew 26, 17 through 21 passage, it seems like they call the fir- the 14th the day of unleavened bread. Why is can that? I, can I make a comment on that? Of course you there? can. The, the, this came up in one of the discussions on, uh, I think it was on the, the blog associated with the Peshitta in, in one of the comments, someone said, oh, how could it be that this is an error? Someone pointed up, it might have been Lou White, actually, now that I think about it, that this demonstrates an error. And I was actually grateful for him bringing this point up because it showed me that the uh, difference between the Peshitta and the Greek. Um, the Greek text here just says, te de prote ton adzumon, that for the first... Mm-hmm. Or it doesn't. The word on it's it's not n. It's in the dative te prote, but it's like it could be read as with respect to or for the first of unleavened bread. In other words, the word day is not there. Neither is the word on there. Whereas in the Peshitta, it says clearly bayom or bayoma mm-hmm. on the day of. And so uh, this is just a maybe splitting hairs here, but I don't know that we have to read that phrase on the first day of. Well, um, you have a, you have the parallel uh, uh, in, in uh, Mark 14, and there in Mark 14, 12, you do have the word day. Oh, you, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. On the first day, and it's kai te prote emera ton azumon. So on the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being crucified, or excuse me, well, that is not when Yeshua was crucified, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples. So Mark makes it clear that the first day of unleavened bread, in his terminology, is not the 15th, as we have uh, it 
that's stated in, say, for instance, Leviticus 23, but in, in Mark 14, 12, it says, when the Passover was being sacrificed. So he makes it very clear. And why I think he does that is because, as far as, as my studies have shown, or what I've found in, in researching this, in the first century, uh, in the pre-destruction era, the, the, it was considered that from, from the noon on the 14th, all leaven had to be gone. And the reason is, is because they began to sacrifice the Passover lambs, and they could not take the lamb or the meat from the temple unless all of Jerusalem was clean, because you're supposed to eat it in a clean place. So that meant that all of the leaven had to be removed from Jerusalem by noon on the 14th. 14th yeah. So they referred to that as the first day of unleavened bread because it was the first day when, uh, when, when chametz was removed from the city as a whole. And so I think Mark is giving us a little bit of that when he says on the first day of unleavened bread, and then he adds when the Passover was being sacrificed to let us know it's the 14th, because that's what Exodus 12 tells us, is that the Passover lamb is to be, uh, is to be uh, slaughtered uh, uh, between the evenings on the 14th. Okay, so uh, I want to move on because we have a couple more passages here. Mark 14, 12 through 17 basically says the exact same thing. Uh, there's some a extra little things in here. Uh, it says that uh, the, they were preparing uh, the Passover uh, on the first day of unleavened bread. And then uh, Luke 22, 7, he says, Then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had, well, lamb is, is uh, added there, but on which the Passover had been sacrificed, had to be sacrificed, so that's the 14th. And then uh, later on in Luke twenty two fifteen, I think that this is a pretty telling verse. Uh, it says, And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. We're going to get back to that verse. In fact, there's uh, uh, one of the articles that we're going to reference. He tries to deal with this. And then... Um, what, what, uh, what was that, Luke 24, what? Uh, 22, four, uh, 15. 22, 15, excuse me. Okay, so then we have uh, Matthew 20, uh, 27, 62 and Mark 15, 42. Clearly tell us that there were two preparation days in a row. And uh, I, I'll read these for you. Uh, now on the day, uh, on the next day, the, uh, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. Okay, that's Matthew 27, 62. And then Matthew 15, 43 through 44. When evening had already come because it was the preparation day. That is, the day before the Sabbath. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So it's, so the day that Yeshua dies is a preparation day. And it seems like they have a preparation day. Uh, yeah, anyway. So, okay. So wait, the, the, what you're saying is there was a preparation day before the day that he was crucified, and he was crucified on a preparation day. Well, that's what I'm... Uh, okay, yeah, that's what I believe, but at the same time, these two passages... Actually, I think my m notes might be wrong here. The, uh, what these two passages are showing is that Yeshua was definitely crucified on a pe preparation day. Right, absolutely. Okay. Um, so I think what I want to do here now is I want to play a clip for you. This is from one of our friends. Uh, I don't know him personally. However, our San Diego friends know him. And uh, I like a lot of the stuff that he puts out. This is from a YouTube channel called New to Torah. And uh, I believe his name is Zachary. Anyway, here we go. Uh, th these are his four nail in the coffin reasons that this, that the meal that Yeshua ate with his disciples was not 
a Passover Seder. Is four nail in the coffins. Okay, here we go. And I, let me give you four reasons, four solid nail in the coffin reasons why I can tell you right now this is not a Passover. Number one, reason number one, Judas gets up from the table to leave and the disciples think he's going to buy something for the feast. If it's Passover and they're keeping Passover right now, it's evening. Verse 30 says it's at the night. It's nighttime. So what shop is going to be open? If the disciples wouldn't have even thought that in the text. It's very clear the disciples thought, oh, he's got the money. He's going to go buy something because Yeshua tells them, go do what you're going to do and do it quickly. And the disciples hear that and think, oh, he's going to go buy something for the feast. It's not Passover. If it's Passover, he wouldn't have been going. You can't buy anything anywhere. Okay, so he's talking about John uh, 13, 21 through 29. Verse 29 says, for, for some were supposing because Judas had a the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need for of uh, for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So uh, our friend brings up a good point. If uh, if it's if it's Passover, why would the disciples believe that Judas was standing up to go buy something uh, on on the Passover? And not only that, but. Uh, if Ju- I mean, in a Jewish culture, even if you, it wouldn't, you wouldn't assume that Jews would think that he was going to go buy something. Yeah, it, it, but that's not a nail in the coffin, <laughs> because even John tells us this is what some of them were supposing. They were reasoning, and you know, just like any good uh, group of Jews around a meal, you're going to have more than one opinion. Some of them were thinking, oh, maybe he's going to go buy something, or maybe he's going to go give tzedakah. Yeah, but I, I mean, do you really yeah, think? Wait, that, wait, wait, wait. The, okay. the main, the main point has been left out. Why does he say, "What do you do? What you do, do quickly"? Why do it quickly? That's 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 what Yeshua says. Whatever you do, do quickly, because Judas was going to go and and tell the the chief priests and so forth what was going on. That's what he was actually leaving for. The disciples, the other disciples, didn't hear and thought, oh, "Okay, well, guess what." They probably started the Passover Seder at 3 o'clock. They were supposed to uh, slaughter and eat the Passover sacrifice between the evenings. They were probably eating at 3 o'clock. It was not yet the Sabbath. So then would that even be a Passover Seder, though? Sure it would. That's when the Passover Seder had to be done. You had to begin eating the Passover uh, sacrifice before sunset. Because it has to be on the 14th. It can't be, you have to begin on the 14th. That's what Exodus 12 says. So you say, oh, they, okay, we're missing something essential, and he's sending Judas out to run out and get it quick. And the, uh, from what I can tell, the merchants continued to uh, uh, sell things uh, right up until, you know, an hour before sunset or so. So uh, the idea that Judas was going to go out and buy something doesn't mean it was the 13th. Why would he have had to do it quickly if it was the 13th? If it was the evening of the 13th. The 14th isn't the Sabbath. So there was no need to say do it quickly. Okay, hang on just a second. Let's read the entire passage. So this is John thirteen twenty one. When Jesus had said, to, uh, said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Um, let's actually go a verse before this. Bear with me here, people. 18. I want to see. Let's go 15. Oops. And following. Okay, so 
and uh, 22, the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one was uh, he was speaking. There was reclining Jesus' bosom disciples. So it doesn't, re- I mean, it says that they're having the meal. Let's go even before that. Let's just say 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So it actually looks like 13.1 actually is clarifying what you're saying. Okay, but wait a minute. I think uh, John 13.1 is a prologue. And John, in his gospel, is, is famous for doing this. He did it at the, the first verse of, the, of, the, of uh, John 1. He gives us this kind of overarching statement. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay? Now here he's saying, even before the Passover uh, came... Yeshua had already set himself to go to Jerusalem and give himself because he told the disciples, I'm going to, the Son of Man is going to go to, to, to Jerusalem and the elders are going to lay hands upon him and crucify him. That, we have that earlier on in the gospel. Okay, so, when he, so John is, is gathering all that together and he's saying he, he, loved him till the, he loved them to the end, meaning what? To the very death upon the cross. So he's given us the whole story there. He's not giving us a chrono, chronological story. Uh, uh, sequence. He's telling us even before the Passover was near, even way back when, he had set his heart and his mind to go to Jerusalem. Then he goes on and begins to tell us about the sequence. Okay? Uh, Andre asks in the chat room, he says, okay, but then would the priests have tried Yeshua and had him crucified on a high Sabbath? And he's taking high Sabbath to mean the festival Sabbath, which would be uh, now, and this is, we're going to bring this up too because you actually think that the high Sabbath is not the festival Sabbath, right? You believe the high Sabbath is the Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath within the Passover. Correct. Okay, so we'll get to that later. But uh, so, would they have crucified him on a festival Sabbath? Well, Rob, you're the expert on this, but I'll just I'll say this: at least the later rabbinic uh, literature tells us that the Sanhedrin was. Uh, it, it, it was legal for the Sanhedrin to meet on a Sabbath if uh, an, uh, an emergency situation occurred to make a ruling. Now, I think it was an emergency situation. We know what happened in, in some years when uh, masses of Jewish people got together in Jerusalem for a festival and rioted. People were killed left and right. I mean, the government just came in and more or less did them in. Okay. So the Sanhedrin said, we've got a powder keg on our hands here. We've got uh, someone who is very much a, a popular leader. I mean, there was this parade to bring him into the, into the city, and uh, there was all kinds of, uh, you know, uh, cheering and so forth and so on. And now he's come, and he's against us, and this is going to be the time when he's going to uh, stand up and make his stand. And so I think they, were, they, they came together and said, what are we going to do with this guy? Uh, this is a rumbling that we can't pass by. So uh, according to the later rabbinic literature, and I have this in the notes that you mentioned, Caleb, um, th- there, there, was, uh, there was every right for the Sanhedrin to meet together uh, on, on a Sabbath, even a festival Sabbath, and, uh, and do what they felt they had to do. Uh, Rob, do you want to add something before we get to, call, uh, to listener 23's question? No, well, I, I think this is a great conversation. I was wondering, though, where, did you want to stick to the framework... With the the is it true to Torah, true to Torah? Oh, new to Torah, yeah, new to Torah. I mean, he were we gonna go boom? He had four things. Yeah, he does have four things. Okay, I was thinking we. So I I guess we could if we 
Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah we've, that we've was heard a, one. I was just wondering, did we do we want to stick on that? Yeah, we'll line? we'll stick on it. But I do want to ask this question because Lois brings up a good good point. Um, she says, does the does the Exodus say does Exodus say that the sacrifice had to be eaten on the fourteenth? Yes. Okay. Um, let's go back to our sound bites then. So, did we address the first one then? Yeah. So the first one is is that, uh, uh, Dad, you're saying that it didn't. That they were eating before the the sunset happened, and therefore uh, buying and selling was still allowed. That's your hypothesis. Is that correct? Correct. And okay. I, and I take that on the basis that he says what you do do quickly. That would have been he the 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 gospel story uh, narrative makes it clear that the other disciples didn't understand what the conversation was between Judas and Yeshua. Okay, it says very clearly they hadn't they didn't understand they didn't hear. So when they heard Yeshua say, what you do, do quickly, they presumed he was telling them, go give some Zedekah or, uh, or go buy something that we forgot to get for the meal. And the fact that he says do it quickly sounds to me like he didn't feel they had much time left before the Sabbath approached. Okay, here, right. let's and, move. And the point is, both of those, the, or John tells us these are suppositions in any case, and we know that neither one of them were, were true. Right. Okay, so, so let's move. So it, it, it's I think this idea of nail in the coffin that, that for this number one I think is uh, I don't it's unsubstantiated. Okay, let's go to number two. Reason number two: there's no mention of the two commanded elements for Passover in any of the gospel accounts. There's no mention of lamb. There's no mention of bitter herbs. In fact, you know what? The two, the one thing that is mentioned, the bread and the wine. First of all, wine's not commanded at Passover. That's something that's also become a tradition. But there's no commandment. Uh, there, the, what's used in the in the Greek versions of our scriptures when we look at the at the um, at the gospel accounts of this meal, it's talking about artos. Artos is a is a leavened bread. It's regular bread. The 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 difference is if you look at uh, Mark chapter fourteen verse one, it talks about unleavened bread. It's the days of unleavened bread. And the word there is azimos, azumos, azumos. And so that is unleavened bread. That would be actually matzah in the Greek. Okay? And that's not the word you see there in chapter 14 when he says he takes the bread. Okay, so he says that uh, the words used in the uh, the meal narratives when Yeshua is having the meal is for bread, not unleavened bread. Wrong. Zumos means leaven. Adzumos just means un, it's an adjective. Right. Besides that, in the Passover Haggadah uh, that now is traditional, and I know it's late, I know it's not what they did entirely uh, in the first century. In fact, we're not exactly sure all that they did in the first century. But it, even in the present Haggadah, you say the Hamotzi as well as the blessing for Matzah. You say both. Well, why? Because artos uh, is is the term that uh, regularly translates uh, bread in general. In general, in 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 the in the uh, Tanakh, and so I'm just looking it up here, and uh, so um, well. It's anyway. okay. Take your time. Yeah. So our artos is the 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 man is called artos. Yeah. Exactly. And in the Septuagint, I mean, so Artos was the manna. I mean, so it's not, manna wasn't leavened. Yeah. 
Well, artos is found 282 times in the Septuagint, and I'm looking down the list here, and I have not found any time when it doesn't translate lechem. That's bread. I think, I think 100% of the time it translates lechem, which could mean, lechem could mean matzah, it could mean uh, manna, it could mean any food that comes from the uh, gr- ground, and it later was the, any food that, that is of grains. So to say that arthos means leavened bread uh, j- just isn't, it isn't uh, apparently aware of the use of arthos in the Septuagint, which would have certainly been important for the writers uh, of the Gospels. Any more on that, Rob? No, no, I, I think that's well said. Uh, Adzumos in the Greek is functioning substantively. Mm-hmm. It just means the kind of artos. Um, <laughs> it's not, yeah, I, I think we're, I, I think that second nail it sure is not I, a nail. Andre, Andre is referring to you as Hoff, but he spells it in Hebrew. That's awesome. Okay, here, here's number three. <laughs> And so uh, there you go. Reason number two. Reason number three. They all leave the house when they're done. This is highly outside of traditional protocol for Passover. Highly outside of protocol. Uh, you know, it's Exodus twelve twenty two where it says that, you know, they would stay inside all night until morning. They would stay inside. And so that's just really the tradition that we see that people would stay. They would go eat their Passover and they would stay inside the house they ate their Passover in until morning. They wouldn't leave. But what do they do? They go out and they go to the garden. Okay, I want to make, before we go on, I just want to make it clear. I'm not trying to pick on, on Zach. I like Zach. He's a, he's a nice guy. He's a great guy. And not only that, but his, some of his videos are, I think he's doing important work for, uh, for the movement. Uh, we're not trying to pick on Zach. Uh, however, since, since he is someone that I like and since he disagrees, I was scouring his videos. So what do we say about number three, his third nail in the coffin? Uh, it seems like no Jew in their right mind would be out on uh, the night of the 14th. <laughs> Go for it. Well, okay. Listen, the, after the actual Exodus night, our Passover celebration is a memorial. It's not the actual Passover. Right. The reclining instead of standing, for yeah. example. And Exactly. And... We don't take blood and put it on our doorpost. Right. Even if we're in Jerusalem, we don't do that. And it's very clear that that's not what, uh, what God intended for us to do. He intended us, uh, for us to have a, a, a festival, a moed, in which our sons and our daughters ask, what is this? And why do you do this? And so we tell them. And so it, it was not a command to, to stay inside your house until morning throughout all your generations on this night. That's not the point. Any more than you had to uh, eat standing with a, a staff in your hand and your sandals on your feet. Uh, no, it was now a, a festival in which we had time. We were not in a hurry because we are free. And so the the idea that if you leave your house, it can't be the Passover is just simply... Uh, misreading Exodus twelve twenty two and its context. I should say that I have actually edited these sound clips to take out some of the uh, filler that uh, our friend Zach has put in here. So if you would like to watch the entire video, uh, I have put it in the show notes for those who are interested. Let's go on to the fourth nail in the coffin. Could Objection we, could from we, Zach. Yeah, go before for Before we do four, yeah, back to two. He and I don't know that we had, we addressed it, but it does 
oh, yeah. connect with Tim with what you were just saying. This pre- the presence of wine mm-hmm. and these other elements that he says weren't weren't because you know a lamb isn't mentioned, bitter herbs is not mentioned. Therefore, it can it cannot be. But the pe- but the lamb is mentioned. It says eat the pesach. Right, I I, I agree. Okay, yeah, so I, that's uh, that seems to be skipped by when he says uh, the that uh, it's not mentioned. Right. If we were to use, in other words, if we were to use the same uh, you know weights and measures that uh, Zach is using, that that's his name, we would point that out. They're reclining. They're not standing. Right. Yeah. You know, it, the presence of wine does not dismiss this. Um, and from being. Uh, excuse me. Go ahead. Finish. No, no. Go ahead, Tim. Okay. Uh, the um, uh, the the reason that the gospel writers tell us what they tell us is because they're not giving us a history of the Passover Seder. They're not even giving us a history of Yeshua's life. If they were, they would have Mark doesn't even mention his birth. They're not giving us a biography of Yeshua. They're giving us a a, a, a spirit led uh, uh, message of the purpose and the meaning and the application of Yeshua's life. Therefore, when they give us the uh, their understanding and their description of the Passover Seder, what is the most important thing? The most important thing is that we celebrate Passover with Yeshua in mind. Why? Because it's by his work that the new covenant is actually established. And what is it that he says? He takes the matzah, he breaks it, he said, this is symbolic of my body, which is broken for you. And when he takes the, the wine, he says, this is the symbol of my blood shed for you. It is what? The blood of the new covenant. Meaning, the blood by which the new covenant is going to be established. Because how does the new covenant text end in Jeremiah 31, 34? For I will forgive their iniquities and their transgressions, I will remember no more. How can you forgive iniquities and their transgressions remember no more. By the sacrifice of an animal? No. Hebrews 10 tells us by the blood of bulls and goats, there is no sin taken away. So when Yeshua says, this is the blood of the new covenant, this is my blood of the new covenant, he's saying, it's my death that is going to be the foundation and establishment of the new covenant prophesied by Jeremiah. So the the bread or the matzah and the wine are the two symbols for the gospel writers that stand up above all others, and those are the ones that they want to emphasize. Well, I guess I would add, one of the questions that I would have for the people who say that it was not a Passover Seder is then what, and, and I have a lot of friends who believe that, so maybe I should ask one of them, but uh, is what, would, what is he saying, do this in remembrance of me? If it's not a Passover Seder, then he's, is he just saying anytime you drink uh, wine and, and eat bread that you do this in remembrance of me? Is he actually instituting uh, communion as the Christian church believes? Is he, um, you know, what what exactly is he saying to do in remembrance of him? Let's move on to the fourth uh, objection. One thing I, 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 that, Caleb, <laughs> sorry, we're all stepping on each other. You know, the Christian church in the early centuries divided over this, whether or not to celebrate the death of Yeshua on the 14th or the 15th. They weren't neglecting, they weren't thinking it's something new. They were thinking, how did this Passover become ours? So they thought it was a Passover, they just were squabbling over which day. Right, right. that's that's well put. Uh, another side point here is that in Exodus 12, the verb to, to do, to keep the Passover... A few times the verb asa is used. Right. Make the sac- to do the sacrifice. 
to do it. And I think that there could be a, when Yeshua says, do this, he's using the same type of uh, mm-hmm. word, the word of, of a word of, of action, of, of something that we do yeah, um, in, in the observance. I should say that the, that the chat room is talking right now about how, uh, how there's nowhere in the Torah that says this. So is he, it seems anachronistic for our friend Zach to say that, that no one would go out of their house. It might be Orthodox tradition today not to leave your house on Passover. But, but they're, uh, they're in Jerusalem, too. I think people would be out um, celebrating. Celebrating. Yeah. They're, they're, you know, I think that, you have to remember, too, that as far as we can tell from Josephus and others, the whole city was considered to be your house. The whole area, including the the Yofel, the city of David, and so forth, because you could eat the Passover uh, meat, the meat from the lamb, anywhere in the city of Jerusalem. There were not enough rooms, there were not enough shelters for all of the people that would uh, come. So they ate inside the city and went outside of the city to sleep at night. Uh, so the idea, th- that whole idea just doesn't make any, I mean, I, I understand where he's coming with that, but it, it, uh, it's, it's not well-founded in history and nor in the text. Uh, one other point, uh, just because I was poking around on this, I think it was one of his er- earlier, I think it was number two, about Artos not being unleavened. Um, you know, that in, in Leviticus, it tells the preparation of the bread of the presence, and it, it doesn't indicate that there's leaven in there, and uh, it uses the word artos to describe uh, lechem hapanim, or lechem panim, the bread of the presence that was in the Mishkan. Um, and Josephus, too, says this was unleavened bread, but it's called artos, nevertheless. Mm-hmm. Um, so just I, that had me curious, so I just did a quick peek on that. Okay, let's listen to number four. The religious leaders are out and about trying to seal up the fate of our Messiah with the Romans that night after the meal. No way would these religious leaders be out and about amongst Gentiles, you know, if it's actually technically now a high Sabbath. In fact, it says that in John uh, chapter 18, verse 28, it says, but did not go in because they didn't want to be declared really what the oral tradition uh, said was unclean. They, they, They were going, taking Yeshua to the hall of judgment, the Roman hall of judgment. And John eighteen twenty eight, but they didn't want to go in, and it says why. It says they didn't want to be unclean for the Passover, <laughs> meaning right there that the meal is over, which you read about earlier in John, John chapter thirteen, and now it's John eighteen, and the religious leaders have him, and they're taking him before Pilate, and Pilate has to come out to them, because these Jews are not about to go into your hall of judgment, because if I do so, according to oral tradition, I would be unclean. I think our friend might get one of these. Hang on. Our friend Zach, I'm sorry. I think that one warrants a... Okay. Uh, Dad, what do you say about this? Well, um, all right. Let me let me uh, reference Deuteronomy 16, 1 uh, through uh, 4. Actually, I'll just read uh, the first few verses. Observe the month of Aviv and keep Pesach, literally do Pesach, as uh, Rob has said. Do Pesach to Adonai your God. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I've got, let me get a better translation here. I won't tell you which one I was reading. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, for in the month of Aviv, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. You shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock and the herd. Now, here we have 
zone, which means normally small animals, smaller animals, and the herd, uh, which generally means, you know, uh, when, when you have the Hebrew word uh, bakar, usually talks about cows and oxen and larger cattle. In fact, everywhere bakar is used, that it's clearly designated by what animal it's referring to, it's a larger animal. It's usually an animal, of, a beast of burden, or an animal that would uh, pull wagons and those kinds of things. So wait a minute. You shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock and the herd in the place where the Lord chooses to establish his name. You shall not eat leavened bread with it. With what? The it refers back to the Passover. You shall sacrifice the Passover. You shall not eat leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat with it unleavened bread. You're going to eat the Passover sacrifice for seven days. Even though it's supposed to be gone by morning. Well... But he goes on to make it very clear. No, I mean, I'm, what I'm saying yeah. is, is that yeah. if it, if if the if the Passover is only is only uh, referring to the lamb that's sacrificed on the 14th, if the pa- you know the Passover lamb is, then uh, you have to eat it all seven days. But yeah, <laughs> but okay. So verse four clarifies that of, of Deuteronomy 16: For seven days no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory, and none of the flesh which you sacrifice on the evening of the first day shall remain overnight yeah. until morning. Yeah. So it, it gives us clear. So when it says they wanted to eat the Passover, uh, it just as it could just as easily be understood to mean they wanted to eat the shlamim uh, sacrifices which the people were bringing. It says on the three uh, regalim, uh, uh, on the three uh, uh, festivals which you were to go to Jerusalem for, right? It says, and you shall not come empty-handed. What does that mean? You shall bring a sacrifice to the Lord. Okay? So, now, according to tradition, again, in the rabbinic uh, literature, they didn't offer the additional uh, uh, festival sacrifices that the people brought on the on the 14th. They sacrificed them on the 15th, the 16th, the 17th, and so forth and so on. So these priests who were on duty at that time wanted the privilege of not only eating, but also participating and taking hides and so forth because that was part of their wages. That, that to me, makes perfect sense, and it helps us to see how John can be reconciled with synoptics. Okay, well, speaking of John, uh, go, go for it, Rob. Real quick, let me, let me share something. Tim, I'm so glad you brought up Deuteronomy. Um, I was just looking at the Septuagint there. there, there in to- if we want to talk about nail in the coffin, it says <laughs> the bread of affliction. Right. And it says Artos. Right. It's Artos. And so, here, so, so uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I you mean speaking, of, speaking about the bread for, for, uh, for Passover? It says, yeah. It says, it says Matzo, that is the bread of affliction, affliction. and yep. it's Artos. Artos. Yeah, right. Okay, so let's move to John now. So these are some of the passages that we've been... Uh, first of all, Adam Smith wants to know what, uh, <laughs> what translation you were, uh, you were reading in the beginning because he wants to judge you. Um, anyway, uh, so John, let's move to John nineteen fourteen. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold, your king. Mm-hmm. Now this is, this is, uh, when Yeshua was going to be sacrificed. Right. Or when he's going to be crucified, I should say, however you want to interpret that. So it says right there, there's a nail in the coffin for you. You're, you've got to be wrong, dad. Uh, John nineteen fourteen says now is the day of preparation for the Passover. Right. Okay. Well, um, when we say Passover, what are we going to? What, what do we mean here? The people that uh, first of all, I'll just say the inconsistencies. 
the people who think that Yeshua didn't eat a, a Passover Seder and ate a meal, uh, some kind of a fellowship meal or whatever, with his disciples uh, at the end of the 13th as it began to, uh, to dawn under the 14th, that is, as the sun set and it became the 14th, they have a difficulty with this as well. Because if he was crucified on the preparation for the Passover, then how come uh, they said they wanted to get him off the, uh, uh, you know, off of the cross because the next because the next day was the Sabbath and so forth and so on. So th there's a little bit of chronology problem here, but the uh, the real thing is this: that um, the Greek word paras um is the word for preparation. Paraskue can uh, can often mean Friday. Because normally it's the preparation day for the weekly Sabbath. Since we already know that the word Passover, to Pascha, uh, in the Greek here, w was used by the gospel writers themselves to mean the whole week. The whole week of unleavened bread is also called the week of Passover or the time of Passover. Okay, so I think it could just as easily be translated as the Friday of the week of Passover. You yourself brought up, Caleb, that, that there has to be two preparation days in a row, because one of the Gospels says it was the day after preparation. And yet he was on the cross on the day of preparation. Okay, When is the only time you can have two preparation days in a row? The only time that's possible is if Friday is a Sabbath. Because then you have Thursday being a preparation for the festival Sabbath, and you have the festival Sabbath being a preparation day for the weekly Shabbat. Now, people say, but wait a minute, that doesn't work. How do you prepare things for the Shabbat on a festival Sabbath? How do you prepare things on Friday for the, the weekly Sabbath? Well, it says in, in Exodus, it says that you shall do no normal work on this festival Sabbath except for preparing food. It recognizes that there are going to be times when the festival Sabbath, that is the first day of of unleavened bread in this case, uh, falls on a Friday, and then you're going to prepare food for the next day as well. So uh, that that's allowed and understood and, and presumed. So I think John 19:14 could just as well be said this way. Now it was the, it was the day of preparation for the weekly Sabbath during the week of Passover, about noon, and Pilate said to the Jewish leaders, "Look, here is your king." And of course these these. Uh, uh, time frame words in the Gospels need some help too because one says it's sixth hour and then it says third hour and so forth and those of you that are knowing the Greek that may be listening uh, just look in your uh, critical text you'll see that there's all kinds of variants in the various uh, manuscripts on these time time words as well so that's how I would take it and we have the same thing going on I think in is it uh, verse 31 uh, well, hang on. We're going to get there in just a few seconds. The chat room is quite uh, in an uproar now about so what translation you were using uh, when you read uh, out of Deuteronomy 9, uh, 18. It's it's uh, it's a translation of little consequence. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but which one did you switch to? Oh, I switched to the New American Standard Bible. Okay. Um, so you referenced, actually, Rob, did you want to mention anything on that before we uh, move on to 1931? Okay, so John nineteen thirty one. This is uh, this is where we're going to get into the high Sabbath. I'm going to read this passage for you. John nineteen thirty one says, "Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so you're uh, assuming that that is Friday, the Friday of, so that's the fifteenth. 
Correct, to you, the, which would be on Friday. Mm-hmm. So then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate, that their legs might be broken. So we, when we think of a festival Sabbath, we think, high, we think that that's the high day. And I tend, to, uh, I tend to think that too, that the festival Sabbath would be the high day and that the weekly Sabbath would not be the high day. Uh, how, do you, how are you trying to reconcile John 19.31? You asking me? I am. At, you're you're the guest, so you're in the hot seat. Okay. <laughs> um, well, I think uh, first of all, we can't find any similar language. At least I haven't. Let me say I haven't been able to find any similar language in Josephus or even in any of the rabbinic literature. They don't consider a festival that falls uh, upon the Sabbath as a high Sabbath. And actually, in the Greek, it's mega. It means big Sabbath. And so uh, the translation high Sabbath comes from the idea of more of uh, a Christian view of things uh, because the the early church had high holy days, and that terminology still prevails today. So what is a big Sabbath? What is a big Sabbath? Well, here's my suggestion. And, And again, I'm taking this viewpoint that John can be reconciled with the synoptics. The three witnesses of the synoptics are easily seen to be unified. So you have three voices, and then you have one voice of John. It just makes sense to me that we seek to reconcile the one voice of John with the three, rather than trying to dismiss the three for the one. So here's how I would reconcile it. What is big about this Sabbath? Okay, well, number one, you have, you have the most people in Jerusalem on any festival day is on Passover. That's pretty well recognized in Josephus and other other places. No, no, I, no. no, when you say big about this Sabbath, I'm sorry to cut you off, but when you say big about this Sabbath, you're talking about the weekly Sabbath. So in other words, you're talking about... I'm talking about Saturday if in, in ni- the normal English calendar. Right. So what you would say would be Nisan 16. You're talking about Nisan 16 as the weekly Sabbath of Passover, correct? Correct. Okay, keep going. Okay. Now, let's see what happened if if my chronolo- if you take the, you agree with my chronology. Okay, they waved the sheaf on the 16th. It was the day after the festival Sabbath. Uh, you know, according to Joshua 5, this is what happened when they came into the land. They began to eat the standing grain the day after the, the, the Passover Sabbath. They rested on that, and then they came into the land, they ate the standing grain. The Torah says you can't eat the standing grain until you wave the sheaf. Okay? So, that became the that became the standard of the Pharisees, and guess what? Apparently, from all that we know in history, in terms of Josephus, I recognize he too saw himself as a Pharisee, but nonetheless, uh, all the historical documents we have say that they waved the sheaf in the temple, in the second temple, uh, on the 16th, the day after the 15th. Okay, so that's what they did. The Sadducees must have given in or something. All right. Now, when they waved the sheaf, there was all kinds of ceremony that went along with it. That was huge. They also began to sacrifice the lambs or the sacrifices that people brought as festival sacrifices. And how many sacrifices would they have had to begin sacrificing? I mean, there had to be a huge number of people who wanted their sacrifices given in the temple the the next day because they weren't taking them the first day, okay? And besides that, it was a a weekly Sabbath. So they had extra Sabbath uh, sacrifices, morning and evening, afternoon, I mean, it was huge. Can you imagine what it must have been up on the Temple Mount? It was it was a repeat of the day before when everybody wanted their uh, their uh, Passover 
uh, sacrifice slaughtered. And so when you say it was a big Sabbath, it meant, I take it to mean, it was a Sabbath that had piled on top of each other all kinds of requirements in the temple and uh, a mass of people that were in the temple larger than any other day of the year. And you're saying big big Sabbath, meaning, uh, so what's the Greek there? Mega, which means big, large, not high. Or the great, okay. Um, Okay, so uh, anything to add to that, Rob? I don't want to cut you off here, brother. Tim, I think, you know, I I lean a lot on, on your commentary, your Matthew commentary here. I was wondering, and I don't remember if you referred to it or not, but in now the Mishnah, which is later, mm-hmm. the rabbis do assume that this could be a weekly Shabbat, that they are putting the sickle right. to the grain, right? They say, even on Shabbat, they say this Shabbat, right, right. this Shabbat. In other words, they're, uh, this, you know, it's reiterating the fact that you're sure this is it, yeah. you know, getting... We don't want getting permission, official authority to to reap right. uh, a grain on the Shabbat in the name of what is overriding it. Right. Right. And I have that in the notes uh, somewhere. I uh, They say, shall I cut? Yes. Shall I cut? Yes. Shall I cut? Yes. Now? Yes. Now they repeat everything three times uh, because they say, okay, this is not ordinary. This is something that we normally don't do. We come out of the temple. We have our sickle. We're walking. We're working in the fields. We're cutting the sheep. Is this really what we're supposed to do? Yes, yes, yes. Do it. You must because this is what the Torah says. Okay. So we have uh, – so this is uh, – I reference an article. A lot of these objections, uh, a lot of these passages that I'm bringing up are from an article which I give you once again in your show notes. It's called Here a Little, There a Little. I think our friend Adam uh, pointed out that this person who wrote this, not that this has any bearing on the uh, on the actual article about Passover, but uh, the person who wrote this, we believe, is a universalist. We could be wrong on that, but uh, just so you kind of have an understanding of where this person who wrote this article is coming from. He writes in his article, he says, uh, and uh, this is a quote now, he says, quote, In the article, The Lord's Supper, the New Bible Dictionary says that, and then he quotes uh, Luke 22, 15, may be read as as an unfulfilled wish. Christ truly longed, so, and this is, uh, the 2215 is the passage, I, I long to eat this Passover with you. So uh, he's saying that the New Bible Dictionary says that this uh, could have been an unfulfilled wish. Uh, continuing with his quote, Christ truly longed to eat that, pa- that coming Passover with his disciples, but his desire could not be realized. It was forbidden because it would have destroyed the plan of God since Christ was destined to be sacrificed as our Passover lamb on the afternoon before the Passover meal. So, I guess the question is, is in Luke 22.15, could the wording here, could the construct be un, uh, of an unfulfilled uh, aspect? I truly long to eat this Passover with you, but it's not going to be fulfilled. Well, it's, it's an aorist active indicative, and it would be, it, I, you know, of course, tense in Greek as well as in Hebrew is... Yeah, more more in, in Hebrew than in Greek, but in Greek is somewhat fluid. So you, I suppose, could take it as a, some kind of prophetic aorist. But uh, normally we would we would say uh, he would say, "I have had a great desire. I have all I have 
been in the past, I have desired to eat this Passover with you. And the fact that he says Topaska, Tau uh, uh, Topaska, uh, or Tau uh, Topaska, this Passover, not some future Passover, but this Passover with you before. And then he says, before I suffer. So the idea that he's saying I I've wanted to but I'm not going to be able to doesn't uh, uh, doesn't uh, compile at all with the context because he goes on and eats something with them, right? Which he has. If he's, di- if he's dipping something into yeah. the <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I think that's pretty weak. I I think that people are jumping the gun, you know, on on their criticisms of of you know, that Yeshua ate a Passover meal. And like the points we've talked about, you know, this language like nail in the coffin, Yeah. you know, just a little background into how Jews used language and things like that in the first century, you know, show that, that it's not, it's not so easy, you know, to, to dismiss. The, The other guy we talked about, was it last week or the week before who believes Yeshua rose on, the weekly Shabbat, he was claiming it's because this phrase, first day of the week, meant first. <laughs> he said that that phraseology, first day, you know, one Shabbat, two Shabbat, three Shabbat, didn't exist in the first century. But he never looked at the Dead Sea Scrolls, which make it very clear <laughs> that counting of days, uh, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, and then Shabbat uh, is clearly present in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which precede, uh, you know, the first century. So uh, um, context has a big part of this, learning the sources and, and learning to be patient. Right. You know, I think sometimes, you know, I've, I, I know what it feels like to want to see something and want to, you know, you're excited for it and you want to argue for it. But I think patience is is what we need to show. I, I, I've been racking my brain, you know, what is it that w- ties back to our first topic today, the false prophets? What is it that gets into people, into their mind that they get so bold yeah. or so zealous for something they're willing to say, if I'm wrong, throw me on the trash heap or whatever. What is it uh, that gets into people? Well, you know, I, I, that's a good question. i just make a quick uh, comment on that. I, I think the motivation of many of the people is sincere. They really they feel like in the past maybe they've been snookered when it comes to what the Bible says, and, and they don't want to be snookered again. They they want to be uh, uh, clear on what it says. So I think the motive is is good. But um, I I also think that they're asking questions like you say, Rob, without really looking at the background and so forth. The idea that Yeshua had to be crucified at the same time that the lambs were being slain. Uh, well, wait a minute. He wasn't crucified at the time the the Yom Kippur sacrifice was given, and clearly the Yom Kippur sacrifice was a foreshadow of his atoning death. In fact, it, it is atonement. The Passover is, is freeing, right? I mean, the blood of the Lamb went on the doorpost in order so that we would be saved from the from, from the death that uh, that God well, from wrath. Yeah, yeah. But but the in terms of uh, cleansing and atonement, uh, that's the pass. Uh, that's the uh, uh, day of atonement, Yom Kippur. And the second thing is, um, I'm just—I don't understand why people aren't striving to, to 
correlate John with the synoptics rather than camping on John and then just disregarding the synoptics. I, I don't get that because, again, we take this premise that there are no, that the scriptures are not self-contradictory. And so as a result, we're seeking to, to find the way that the one voice is reconciled with the voice of three. I got it. Andre makes such a good point in our chat room. I got to bring it up. He says the reason people went uh, want Yeshua to uh, to not have eaten the Passover is because then he would have been sacrificed at the same time as the lambs, making it more symbolic. But that turns out to be an argument against the, that position because the priests would have been very busy sacrificing lambs, too busy to to try anyone anyway. So mm-hmm. uh, that is a. I think that's a great point. So. Uh, we're almost finished here with uh, our objections uh, for my father. And let's see if he can reconcile this one. This one is, I mean, everyone who uh, disagreed with me brought this one up. And everyone uh, said that I needed to uh, bring this up to you, Dad. Mm-hmm. This isn't even from John. This is from Mark and Luke. So I'll read both of the passages and then uh, you can go for it. So Mark 16.1 says, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and uh, Salome bought spices so that they may not uh, they might come and anoint him. So that's uh, after the Sabbath, when the Sabbath was over. Luke 23.56 says, Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes, and on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. So it seems like they have uh, spices beforehand. So if, the sa- if there was two Sabbaths in a row, how is it that, they're, uh, that, they, that you can reconcile these two verses together? Well, the first thing is that uh, you have this. Uh, the Greek is a little is not quite as uh, clear as as you might think. Diaginomai. Uh, it usually does mean past. So when it says the Sabbath was over, uh, when the Sabbath was over is 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 an okay way to translate it, I suppose. But it's not it's not the normal word for something being done or or finished. In, in uh, but. Okay, Let but they, get, it would have to be because they bought the spices, right? Yeah. Okay. When the Sabbath was over in Mark sixteen one, all right, they, they they bought spices. Okay, so let me give you this scenario, because Luke twenty three fifty six says, then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes, uh, perfumes, and on the Sabbath day they rested according to the, to the commandment. Okay, so uh, let me give you this scenario. Is there any way to reconcile Mark and Luke in this? I think there is. Okay, they said, look, we need to prepare the body for uh, Yeshua's body for burial. This is a, this is a very long tradition amongst the, uh, the Jewish people to prepare, uh, to take care of the body, which uh, was also created in the image of God. Okay, so they start getting things together. Maybe the linens that they needed, the wrappings, they may have torn cloth or whatever. Uh, and they prepared and they said, oh, guess what? We don't have enough spices. We don't have enough of what we need you know, the spices were given primarily to so that you could continue to uh, uh, visit the, the tomb uh, during the during the, the year or whatever. Uh, and uh, so that, well, just to be honest with you, so that the, the smell w- wasn't overbearing. OK, well, then they say we haven't got enough. You know, in one of the other Gospels, it says that uh, Nakimon brought 100 pounds of spices. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you... That's John 19. 19, yeah. Uh, he, 1939. Right. So they, they're, they're, they're going around their homes. They're trying to find what they, what they have. They don't have enough. They say, oh, no, we don't have enough. We're going to have to wait until after the Sabbath. 
Why did they return and prepare spices and then rest on the Sabbath? Well, because they didn't have time to prepare the body, or actually we know they went and, and, and felt that they couldn't, perhaps, or something like that. And so they say, we're going to have to wait until after the Sabbath. What do they do after the Sabbath? They take the things that they have already prepared, and they go and buy the extra that they need. And when do they finally go to the, to the tomb? Early on the first day of the week. They didn't wake three days. That's right. <laughs> so and bo- Both Mark and Luke tell us that they, they rested according to Shabbat. <laughs> the point is that they were observant of the Shabbat. Right. And so uh, early in the morning, they get up early and they want to go as soon as they can to get to the tomb. And what do they do? They find it rolled away. The body's not there. Okay. So uh, apparently they didn't know that Nakimon had already uh, brought the spices and, and so forth and so on. So, uh, you know, the, to me, it, it's, not a, it's not any big problem because... Uh, I've been in a situation where I thought I was all ready for the Sabbath and I wasn't, and I had to wait till after the Sabbath to go, you know, fill my car up with gas or whatever, uh, you know, early Sunday morning so I could go somewhere. Uh, okay, so that same thing happened here. I don't think there's a big problem. Okay, we have one last question from the chat room. The only question I have left is what day was the festival of first fruits? Did Yeshua resurrect? Hang on. Did Yeshua resurrect? Uh oh, where did it go? Basically, did Yeshua resurrect on the on first fruits, or did he resurrect on Sunday? So, in other words, and and you're going to have this question the 72 hours. Actually, uh, while you answer, did he uh, raise on a Saturday, or did he raise on a Sunday? I'm going to find this other question that somebody had online. Go for it. Okay. First of all, um, the the first day of waving the sheaf is never called a festival of first fruits. The only time you have Chag Habikorim uh, is in relationship to Shavuot, I believe, or is it Sukkot? At any rate, let me look and see. So, uh, first fruits simply means the first uh, waving of the of the barley, so that you then had the right to eat it, the standing grain from that point on. It's Shavuot. At Shavuot, right, okay. So um, if you want to try to coincide Yeshua's resurrection with the festival of first fruits, you're going to have to wait till Shavuot because the Torah never uses the word Chag with uh, Bikurim, with first fruits, as, uh, uh, except for Shavuot. And so uh, uh, secondly, uh, I don't, I, in the same way that I don't think we have to have his crucifixion being coincided in terms of the hours that the uh, lambs were being slain. He's the first fruits from the dead, meaning what? Is he the first person to have resurrected from the dead? No. Lazarus was before him, right? So you can't say that he's the first one that ever was resurrected from the dead. No. There were others while he was on the cross that came out of the graves and, and walked in Jerusalem. What does it mean he's the first fruits? It means that he is the, he is the, uh, the, the first in terms of like the uh, bringing the first of the of the crops, so then what? So then the rest can be eaten. So he's the first to be resurrected from the dead, so that those who are his will also be resurrected. That's what it means. First fruits. It doesn't have to coincide with the waving of the sheaf. So I, I think he was resurrected sometime after the Shabbat. I don't know if it was uh, while it was still dark. Well, I must have been when it was still dark because they came. And, and by the way, that's another point I guess I should make real quickly, and that is in, uh, in Matthew, uh, 
Matthew 28, 1, if I remember correctly. It says, uh, now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week. Uh, it's very interesting because if you look at the, um, the first uh, mission of Pesachim 1, 1, it uses the same terminology in terms of the dawning of the day when it's actually at night. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, the light of the 14th is the way the Mishnah speaks. So the, uh, and we have a similar kind of thing here, uh, to dawn uh, is the Greek word. And so it doesn't necessarily tell you that the sun has come up. Okay, so two things here. Uh, first of all, I want to go back to what you said about uh, uh, people being raised, uh, and then Adam says uh, Lazarus beat him to it in terms of Yeshua being the first one, uh, uh, you know, the first fruits. I would say that Yeshua was the first one to ever raise with an eternal body. Well, no, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not saying that there isn't a reality of first fruits, but the giving of the first fruits means that the rest of the harvest now can be harvested and used. Okay, that's the whole purpose of first fruits. Until you designate the first fruits and give it to the Lord, you're not supposed to eat any of the harvest. So basically, when, it's, when he says he's the, he's the first fruits from the dead, it means he's the first. Now all those who are his will also be raised from the dead. Okay, Lazarus' resurrection from the dead didn't affect anyone else. Well, and Lazarus ended up dying in the end. He's not still around. Yeah, yeah. Well, as far as we know, so <laughs> Yeshua, Yeshua's resurrection from the dead becomes the power by which we all are resurrected. See Why? that? That's because what... his resurrection proves the 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 substance of his death. That should have been the Highlander movie. It was Lazarus still on Earth. <laughs> still on Earth. Okay. Some uh, people actually argue that I think Lazarus wrote the Book of John. Matthew twelve forty says, uh, "For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth." If Yeshua died on a Friday, he rose on a Saturday evening or on a Sunday morning. He still was not in the earth for three days and four nights. So, how do you reconcile such a thing, Dad? Well, first of all, there's only twice where it even gives the opportunity in the apostolic scripture to say after. The only time that you have him resurrecting on Sunday, I mean, on the first day of the week, is in the disputed ending of Mark, which I think is fairly clearly not Scripture. Okay, the, the long ending of Mark 16. Everywhere else it says, and he says it himself, on the third day. Is it on or after? So, uh, for instance, if you say, look at Matthew uh, 16.21, from that time, Yeshua began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised on the third day. Okay, but even then, you have three days and three nights. No, you don't. Well, that's the point, is that Matthew says three, just as... Uh, okay, but what I'm saying is, he, you know, if he's resurrected on the third day, there's not 72 hours, no matter what you do. Okay, so, now, if we look at... If we look at uh, uh, the Luke parallel to Matthew, it, 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 for instance, in Luke eleven twenty nine, we read, "As the crowds were increasing, uh, excuse me, uh, yeah, as the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Why doesn't Luke say three days and three nights? What's the point of Jonah being three days and three nights in the belly of, uh, of, the, of the fish? 
um, well, it means that he was he was considered to be dead and comes back to life. The sign of Jonah is the resurrection. And let me just point something out. I just found here. Um, let me see if I can find it again. And it is uh, Deuteronomy 30. And I think it's verse 11 and 12. And yes, for this commandment, which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say who will go up to heaven for us to get it, uh, that we may observe it. Uh, nor is it beyond the sea that you should say who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it. So actually that's uh, verses 11 through 13 of Deuteronomy 30. Uh, 30. But listen to uh, Neophyte. <laughs> the Targum, Neophyte. It says of verse uh, it, uh, verse 12, It, the Torah, is not in the heavens, saying, Oh, that we had one like Moses the prophet who would go up to heaven and take it for us, that he might make us hear the commandments so that we would do them. And it, the Torah, is not across the great sea, saying, Oh, that we had one like Jonah the prophet who would go down into the depths of the great sea and bring it up for us so that we might ca- he might cause us to hear the commandments that we might do them. Now, why do they choose Jonah? The Targum uses Jonah because Jonah was considered to be dead and comes back and comes back with what? A message, a message from God. And that's exactly how Luke takes it. He would be a sign so that he would give a message and they would then they receive it. And so Yeshua says, you know, we have the parable that of the uh, of Lazarus and the rich man. He says, even if one were to resurrect from the dead, they wouldn't believe him there. Three days and three nights is not given to say there has to be 72 hours. Three days and three nights is a good Hebrew way of saying he's stone dead. If you're in the grave for three days and three nights, according to later rabbinic literature, your body is already starting to decompose. This is what we learn about Lazarus, right? They say, look, he's been dead for four days. He already stinks. So three days and three nights is not saying 72 hours. It's saying... He's going to die and rise again. And that's a, that, that, quote, that therefore puts together Matthew and Luke. All right. Rob, anything, uh, anything to add before we uh, sign off today? Nope. <laughs> Man of few. I think, I think we've, we've shown that the, it's not so cut and dried. You yes. know, that, and, and this is a lesson for all of us to, to be patient to not get all puffed up. You know, I think one thing in the theme of unleavened bread is how we can get puffed up with, we can get, I know what it's like to be zealous for the wrong thing. I've, I have done that. And I think that there's a, a real important lesson for how knowledge, our, our excitement for something that we're calling knowledge can pop, puff us up and, and then we start to see ourselves as, uh, the person with the this truth that now we're going to correct everybody, you know, right? Um, just yep. some thoughts there on the leaven, as a doctrines can be like leaven, right? Yeshua says, "Beware of the doc of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees." The best student is a humble student, and the best teacher is a humble teacher. It's in it's not our truth; it's His truth, Amen. and we all submit to it. Yeah, yeah. Yeshua in Matthew twenty three, he says, "You have one teacher, and you are all brothers." 
Absolutely. And even in the in the commandment of Deuteronomy for the king to write a safer Torah for himself, it says uh, that his heart, the bilti rum levavo meachav, that his he, that that he read it every day that his heart would not be lifted up above yeah. his brothers. Yeah. That like James says that you know we we we're not like those who see ourselves in the mirror and then walk away and forget. Yeah. Rather, when we look into the Torah of truth, we we are humbled because why? As Paul says, you know, by the Torah is, is the knowledge of sin, and of course the lesson for the ultimate uh, payment that, that the covenant that God took upon himself, not for works we have done, but because of his grace. Yeah. Um, and that we're, you know, what, what do we have that we did not receive? Paul says, and, and it is not a Torah of boasting, but this is a Torah of faith. Yes. Baruch Hashem. All right. Well, um, I hope that, uh, we have shown that you can't be super dogmatic one way or the other. Uh, you know, we hold to our view and other people hold to their views. That's okay. If you disagree with us, that's totally fine. And uh, you can let us know that if you want by sending us an email, radio at torresource.com. See Hag at torresource.com or vanhoff at torresource.com. Hey, uh, Passover's coming up on Friday. So we hope that you have a wonderful Passover Seder. And uh, we hope that you, that maybe this has helped you shed some light on Passover in the Bible. And most of all, we hope that your Passover Seder will honor and shine a light on our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah. Booyah. All right. Thanks, guys. So how did it's, it was 